All right. Well, uh, hey, how about we get started? That sounds good. Um, there are uh, handouts by the doors. Hopefully you saw them in the music stand there and then kind of tucked away on chairs back there. This week's handout, it's like, uh, it's like last week's, but even better. Because last week I just put uh, the genealogy kind of in a table and printed that off for you with some cross-references. But this week's actually got an outline. We've got, um, I'm, I'm hoping to cover a lot today. Um, we're going to be jumping around in our Bibles, doing a lot of kind of an Old Testament survey to help unpack and understand the significance of the genealogy. Matthew gives us in, in Matthew chapter 1. Um, and so I thought, not just a PowerPoint, uh, not just a genealogy on a table, but even a, an outline there for you to follow along would be, would be helpful. So that's there. Hopefully you grabbed one of those. Um, and just a, before we pray, just a couple quick notes. One, it was in the bulletin, it's kind of obvious, there's no Sunday school next week. Christmas Eve. There's no Sunday school the week after that, New Year's Eve. Uh, but then in January, uh, one of our elders, Jeff Birch, will be teaching uh, in the class that meets in here, here in the Fellowship Hall. He'll be teaching on uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, so that'll start then. Then also, uh, we'll have a class I'll be teaching down in room 109. Um, if you're a part of the church plant, if you really want to be a part of that, I especially would love to have you down there, but it's really for anyone who wants to be uh, part of that class downstairs in room 109. We're going to be going through the Lord's Prayer and really just uh, trying to unpack and understand the significance and the role of prayer, not just in the individual life of the believer, but as its, uh, its central role in the life of the church, that we are a praying people. Um, so that's what we'll be unpacking downstairs. That starts in January. So again, right up in here, adult Sunday school class on Ephesians Downstairs, room 109, adult Sunday school class on prayer. Um, and so I guess uh, that, that's a good segue into just, uh, would you pray with me now as we begin this Sunday school class? So pray with me. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your goodness to us. Uh, we praise you for what we could ponder this morning, uh, that you have come to save us. Uh, that you, uh, your glory, you have glory in the highest and your glory has come to take on flesh, to live faithfully where we have failed and to die in our place so that we might have peace with you. So thank you that we can be united by the Spirit and your Son, reconciled to you and each other. So we ask that you would, uh, you would feed us and take care of us this morning as we continue to examine your word, to study it, to ponder it. We pray for this class that's meeting here as we unpack more of Matthew's uh, account of Jesus' genealogy. We pray for all the Sunday school classes happening around this building right now, that they would be times of joyful discovery of you and your goodness. So again, Lord, by the power of the Spirit, we ask that you would do this. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, quickly, turn to your neighbor. What do you remember from last week? Turn to your neighbor. What do you remember from last week, if anything? Maybe work together to get your memory jogged. It's probably been a long week in between.
right, you can bring it back up here. Um, not going to hand out a quiz and grade you and kind of check on uh, your learning, see what you remember. Uh, hopefully you remember something. Um, but we started to unpack Matthew's genealogy of Jesus in, in Matthew 1, 1 through 17. And what we really focused on last week was on the, the Jesus being the son of Abraham. And so we'll, we'll do a little bit of review. Uh, but here, here's the real bonus thing. Who remembers the closing song from last week's service? Anyone? No, okay. I guess that was maybe a little above and beyond. Uh, so the closing song of last Sunday morning, we sang, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And I think it was a, a really, obviously it makes sense to sing in this time of year. Uh, but one, there's one line that I think is really significant from that, that carol that carries over to what we're going through here in Matthew's genealogy, right? Where we talk about, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. And there's a real significant part. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Right, we sang last week, we, we made this claim that the years, the collected years of human history have hopes and fears. And in fact, this is a really common theme in uh, the music and just the way we talk about Christmas. It's this idea that there, is, there are hopes and fears, that there's, there's longing, there's anticipation, there's hunger that exists within the world. Not just that some individuals have this, but that like the, whole, the world as a whole is a hungry, longing, waiting, hoping world. We might use the word pining. We used the word pining earlier. This is hopefully not as hard of a quiz. What song did we finish this week's uh, uh, yeah, service with? Service, that's the word I was looking for. What, what song did we finish with? Oh, okay, good, good. We remember that, right? This is what we sang just a moment ago, right? Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It's the night of our dear Savior's birth, right? We lit, set the scene. Long lay the world in sin and error, pining, right? Longing till he appeared and the, the, full, the soul felt its, its worth. That's not the greatest um, line in the song right there. But, right, this idea, a thrill of hope, the weary world. Again, this weary world is rejoices. Yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Again, there's this theme that kind of permeates all our, our Advent and Christmas celebrations, rightly so, that our world is longing, right? This is, this is biblical. Romans 8 talks this way. Paul says the creation waits, creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So we live in a weary world, a pining world, a world filled with hopes and fears. And, and last week we really unpacked 
kind of the biblical foundation for this theme, why the world is like this. We talked about um, the, the curse in, in, in Genesis 3. Um, at the serpent's curse, there's, there's pain and childbearing. Uh, the ground itself, right? Because you've listened, this is the Lord speaking to Adam in Genesis 3, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground, the earth, because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. There's toil, there's frustration, there's inefficiency, there's barrenness, there's hunger, there's famine, there's strife. The world is weary because of curse. And so it's, uh, so God's people ever since have been a forward-looking people, right? Remember Seth and his generation, we looked at Seth, and that was when people began to call on the name of the Lord there in Genesis 5. And people looked forward to someone like Noah. Maybe he'll be the one who gives us rest. They're looking ahead. Where is our rest? Where is our relief? Where is the one we're pining for going to come from? And a real big moment was in Genesis 12. Randy already alluded to it or talked about it a bit this morning during the sermon, right? This promise that blessing would come to the place where there had been cursed. The, all the families of the earth is the way we translate it normally in Genesis 12, but it's the same word, all the families of the ground, the cursed ground. And so locked in through, through Abraham's faithfulness is the certainty that this blessing would come. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring, the Lord says to Abraham. We looked at this last week. As the stars of the heaven and the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies, and in your offspring, that's singular, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth, all the nations of the cursed ground, be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So that's why we, we, we kind of kept our eyes on the son of Abraham. We kind of followed that throughout Scripture. We noted that Scripture really follows the son of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham, the generations of Abraham. As a hawk, like, kind of watches its prey. Like, just where, when is it going to come? Um, and we saw, it, you know, um, one of the things we sing about, joy to the world, again, one of my favorites, right? He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. The son of Abraham, we could say, usually joy to the world, the Lord has come. Randy rewrote a Christmas carol this morning. I'm going to rewrite a Christmas carol this morning, right? Joy to the world, the son of Abraham has come, right? You say he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And so what we're going to see this morning, though, is that God's promise to Abraham about his offspring is channeled through his promise to David and his offspring. And this is good news for me and you. This is not just neat Bible trivia. Uh, This is not just kind of some esoteric thing to ponder. This is really good news for us. I think as we understand this, as we unpack this, we will see more and more reason to celebrate, like genuinely celebrate Christmas, to feast like we do. It won't just be an empty ritual, but to really feast and celebrate the birth of our Savior. So I'm going to read Matthew 1 through 17, just like I read it last week. Uh, you'll, if you don't know already, it's pretty repetitive. Uh, but Matthew gives us some clues of how to understand it, right? He breaks us down into three chunks. 
We really want to, there's, there's 14 generation chunks he breaks it down into. One is the 14 generations from Abraham to David. The next big chapter is the 14 generations from David to the deportation to Babylon, the Babylonian captivity, exile to Babylon, whatever you want to call it. And then there's 14 generations from Babylon to the birth of Jesus, who is called the Christ. And by emphasizing Jesus, the Christ, David, and Abraham at both the beginning and the end, he makes it just abundantly clear. Those are the main names we're supposed to take note of here. That's a whole chain, like a chain of lights. Kind of think of these, each of these generations, these 14 generations, like a, a string of Christmas lights. You know, you're able to just plug them into the next, plug them into the next, and they really get their power from the fact that this all leads up to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. So, Matthew 1, 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez by Zerah and by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz, and Boaz the father of Obed, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, the king. I skipped over Boaz by Rahab and the father of Obed by Ruth. Those are important. I'm reading too quick, sorry. Where were we? Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Isaiah. And Isaiah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah. And his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After, and after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father, father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Like I said, we unpacked last week that first pile of names. The significance of Jesus being the son of Abraham. But as we read there, right, Abraham leads us eventually to David, and David's the next significant breaking off point. And so it's, uh, I think it's helpful if we're going to understand why is it such a big deal that Jesus is the son of David. Um, we need a little bit backstory on Jesus. On, no, we need a little backstory on David. Because um, it is significant. I pointed this out last week, but I'll point it out again. Um, we, get a, we found out who is the father of a lot of people, or who is at least an ancestor of a lot of people through this, right? This person begat that person, if you got the King James, or is the father of, as I just read. But the idea of who's the son of whom is only, that sort of phrasing is only saved 
for the son of David and the son of Abraham. It's almost as if those titles, the son of David and the son of Abraham, are really like titles packed with meaning. It's not just, oh, they happen to come from this line. I happen to have this heritage. But no, Jesus is the son of Abraham as a title with deep significance. And he is the son of David, again, a title with deep significance. And so we, we need a little background on who David is. Um, again, uh, Randy always makes my work easy for me because he went over a lot of this last week. He, we, we, we were talking about David. We were talking about uh, his anointing just last week during the sermon. And you know, we know that David was just really an anonymous shepherd boy uh, in a little town called Bethlehem, but then he had his life turned upside down by the visits of the Lord's prophet Samuel. Or, yeah, Lord's prophet Samuel. At the time, Saul was the, the first king of Israel, but the Lord had rejected Saul. And so the prophet Samuel is sent with the Lord's authority to anoint a son of Jesse. And to the surprise of everyone involved, the one that the Lord chose was the youngest of them all, the one who's he's called ruddy in appearance. Maybe you've, you've heard that description. That, that verse has stuck out where he's called ruddy and handsome. Have you ever wondered why do we get that little description of, of David, that he's ruddy and handsome? You're, you're tracking with me? You remember that, that, that verse from 1 Samuel? I mean, it, it's interesting because it seems like uh, it's drawing on the fact that David's kind of a, it's kind of a pretty boy. Right, Saul. He gets right. Saul gets the description. He's taller. He's like, man, who, who do we want to fight our battles for? Like that Saul guy. Then it's like, uh, that David. He's ruddy and handsome. Not exactly. Again, according to outward appearance, who you'd choose to be your warrior leader. But it's the one the Lord who looks on the heart chooses. It's the pretty boy David, and that's that's really what happens in First Samuel sixteen, and things really get rolling from David there. His life is never the same. First Samuel seventeen, the most famous story about David, he delivers Israel, specifically by defeating Goliath. He t- proves very quickly as the anointed one to be Israel's deliverer, but just as quickly as he proves to be Israel's deliverer, he is rejected. Right. You remember the, the, the cheer that was going on out there? Yeah, Saul, he's pretty good. But you know who's great? David. That turns Saul pretty bitter pretty quick. So what you read about for the rest of 1 Samuel is David's on the run. He's pretty much rejected by Saul. Certainly he's bringing blessing wherever he is as he walks by faith. But he's, he's rejected. He's, he's in some ways the original suffering servant. The original rejected anointed one. And Saul grows to hate him more and more, and so he lives his life on the run. But again, the Lord is with him. So eventually, I mean, we're fast-forwarding a lot here. We get to 2 Samuel 6, and he's reigning in Jerusalem, not just over his own tribe, Judah, but over all of Israel. He has the loyalty of all 12 tribes by the time you get to 2 Samuel 6. Not only that, though, through some trials, but there in 2 Samuel 6, the Ark of the Covenant is brought to Jerusalem. And so as one Old Testament scholar, uh, Dr. Block, who had been here a couple years ago for a men's conference, points out, is this is for the first time the throne of Yahweh and the throne of the king are situated 
in the same place. This is a big deal. It's a big moment. But, uh, so that leads us then to 2 Samuel 7. Missing a page of my notes, but I know what I'm talking about. All right. That leads us to 2 Samuel 7, which again, another Old Testament scholar uh, calls the most crucial theological statement in the Old Testament. So we're going to spend some time here on 2 Samuel 7. Because again, as we've set the scene, David is ruling over all 12 tribes with their loyalty. Not only that, the ark has finally been brought to Jerusalem. Ark of the Lord, the throne of Yahweh and the throne of the king are situated in the same place. David clearly recognizes that this is a big deal. Because we read in 2 Samuel 7 verse 1, Now when the king lived in his house, And the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for Yahweh is with you. It's interesting. There's a little bit of a leap happening in this dialogue. David simply made an observation, right? I've got a really nice house. I dwell in a house of cedar. Ark of God. It's in a tent, technically. Tabernacle. Uh, How come I have seemingly, from outward appearance, a nicer house than the Lord? Um, And Nathan seems to understand that he's not just making an observation. He's wanting to do something. He says, go, do all that is in your heart. The Lord is with you. Now just quickly turn to your neighbor. Fill in the blanks. What do you think David is suggesting? Uh, what does Nathan think David is wanting to do? What does he think is in his heart to do? Just turn to your neighbor real quick. See if you can fill in those blanks. Well, no, I'm okay, thanks. All right, um, I suspect you knew the answer. Maybe you didn't. The Lord knew the answer. All right, we keep reading. That same night, the word of Yahweh, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Like the clear implication was that David wanted to build the Lord a house to dwell in, a, a, a temple, a, a physical permanent temple. But the Lord re- refuses his offer. Uh, we can debate whether it's politely or not or whether that even matters because um, he simply goes on to say, would, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt. Right? The Lord launches into a little bit of an Old Testament history review here. Right, to this day, I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, that I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to, my, to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Essentially, the Lord says, like, 
I, I have never dwelt in a house. I've never needed this permanent temple. I was the one who gave to Moses the instructions for the tabernacle. That was my idea, and it has been a great idea. I'm fine with it. I don't need you to build me anything, right? This is the way uh, the Lord always relates to his people. He's never sitting there going like, oh, please, please, would you do something for me? I, I, I really just don't have the means to get it done. I, I just haven't had the time to get around to moving my people to build me a temple. If you, thanks, David, for thinking of that. Teamwork makes the dream work. There we go. Right? That's not how the Lord works. No, he's had no need for this. That's not to say David's thought isn't pious, but it certainly is not something the Lord needs. And in fact, the Lord, again, makes clear how he relates to his people, where he, he, he kind of plays on this term of house. Um, you, where he says to David, oh, you, were, you want to build me a house? I've got an idea. How would I build you a house, a household? i build you a, a, a lineage. That's what I'm going to do. You want to build me a house? No, this is the way it works. I'm going to build you a house. Receive from my abundant grace is essentially what he says. That's what we keep reading in verse 8. The Lord continues talking to, to Nathan. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the names of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, who I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Again, turn to your neighbor. Can you give a quick summary? What did the Lord just promise to David? What was his counteroffer? Are you going to build me a house? No, here. This is what I'm going to do for you. How would you summarize it? What was he promised to do?
All right. You can bring it back up here. Some of the things he promises are very immediate. Promises to give rest from enemies. And that's exactly what we see happening in the chapters before and the chapters afterwards. We're not going to dig into all that. But essentially what you'd see is he gives rest in the sense that he gives, he gives victory, right? Peace comes through victory over his enemies. And that's exactly what God gives David. Um, so he, he establishes his people uh, where they're at. He cuts off their enemies. Uh, and... He, he promises to do something within his, his offspring, that his offspring will be the one who will uh, can actually be the one to build the temple, to build the house. And we'll, we'll get into that in a moment. But there's one word. I think one word is repeated more than any other. Um, well, I think I is actually the most reported, re- repeated word in here. The Lord himself is promising to do this, right? I will, I will, I will. So I guess second place, though, in most repeated word in this section what do you think it is? Yeah, for those of you who are familiar with the sandlot, right? Forever. Forever. Right? If you're of a certain generation and you've seen the sandlot, you can't hear that word without hearing it enunciated like that, right? Forever. This is a promise that God is making. To David and his house, his kingdom, his throne, forever. Forever. It's an eternal promise. And so some of it is immediate. Undeniable. You keep reading into 2 Samuel, into 1 Kings, and you read about Solomon, and you see that exactly what God promised is what happens. He says, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, that is Solomon, and I will establish his kingdom. That certainly happens. He shall build a house for my name. If you're reading 1 Kings chapter 1 through 8, that is the main concern. That is the main concern of all eight of those chapters. Building of a house for his name. The te- Solomon's temple, as we often refer to it, gets built. And the kingdom flourishes, right? It reaches a point, there's, there's stories of, I mean, it's actually really enjoyable, fun reading to go ahead and read, you know, First uh, Kings chapter 9 in that era, where you just hear about all that Solomon has. I'm just always fascinated by the fact that he's got peacocks and gorillas, and there's just this sort of like, he has a reign unlike any king. And you have all these numbers of what's being brought to him and these dignitaries from other countries coming and gaining wisdom through his winning. The nations being blessed through his wisdom. It's an incredible fulfillment. Not a final fulfillment, but it's an incredible fulfillment of God's promise to and through David and his offspring. But, it, but as we keep reading, especially as we just read in Matthew's genealogy, we're suddenly made to question a little bit that repeated word, forever. I mean, it didn't even last all of Solomon's life. He turned, uh, his heart was turned away, and in his own generation, and if you read through the names of the people in between David and the deportation to Babylon, yeah, there's some very honorable kings in that list. But there's a lot of hearts turned away. And so that question of, oh, this is going to last forever, that 
as Matthew puts it, it's 14 generations before their, the deportation to Babylon, which really, really, really cause, causes the people to question the foreverness of this promise. Right, if you just, we'll, we'll skim through quickly some of the accounts of this deportation to Babylon. Right, If you're not familiar, it, the deportation to Babylon is a pretty vanilla way to describe it. It is much more horrendous than a mere relocation uh, to a new place. You read, for example, in 2 Kings 24, not the only account, but at that time the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem and the city was besieged, and Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign. I'm like, wait, I thought there was a, his throne was supposed to be established forever, not 14 generations but we, we do get an explanation for why this happened, though. We do get an explanation. Places like Second Chronicles 36 would be one. I'd, I'd commend opening up to Second Chronicles 36 if you can get there. We see, again, this, this uh, deportation recounted. We get some more details on everything that played out at this moment in time. But we also get this little summary in verse 17. Therefore, he, that is the Lord, brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans. That's Nebuchadnezzar. who killed their young men with a sword in the house of their sanctuary, had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or age, and he gave them into hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, the treasures of the kings and of his princes, and he brought to Babylon, all these he brought to Babylon. And we can continue going. Um, we see, but we see, why did he do this? We're told just before in verse 15. The Lord, the God, their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, the prophets, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, but he called them to repent. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his word, scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. So it seems that their sin, their rebellion, their rejection, their hard heart has eclipsed God's forever promise. And you maybe could have seen this coming back in 2 Samuel. You maybe could have seen this coming if you were paying attention to all that the Lord promised. Right? Because we was told, I will be to him a father. This is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, where we just were. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. What does he mean by that? There's a lot he means by that, but one of them is fatherly discipline. Because he goes on. When he, that is your offspring of David, commits iniquity... I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. So you read that and inevitably there's this tension that's in the air. There's this tension that's in the narrative. Wait a minute. 
is the sin, the sin that persists generation after generation. Is it ever going to be able to be gone enough so that the love and the blessing can be what's sensed and felt? Uh, this is what so many psalms and different parts of Scripture are wrestling with. Uh, Lamentations is all about this. Hey, we're, here we are in this deportation to Babylon. Everything's been destroyed. Is the love of God just off of Israel now? Right? This is Lamentations 5, just the beginning and end of that chapter. He says, Remember, O Lord, what's befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. And then he goes on to the end of that chapter. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Right? He calls on the name of the Lord. He turns him in prayer with hope. But as I read this last verse, you'll see that there's a little bit of uncertainty in the hope. Right? Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us. And you remain exceedingly angry with us. Right? Is this judgment the final word? You see the same dynamic taking place in Psalm 89. I'm not going to unpack all of that. But the beginning of Psalm 89 is a meditation on the steadfast love of the Lord. Right? He says, the psalmist at the beginning of Psalm 89 says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. I've said steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and will build your throne for all generations. Right? Celebrating that foreverness, throne for all generations. But as it goes on, that psalmist recognizes that boy, that seems like a lot of talk and not a lot of walk right now. Later in the psalm, it goes, but now you, you who said your steadfast love will be built up forever, you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You've renounced the covenant with your servant. You've defiled his crown in the dust. You've breached all his walls. You've laid his strongholds in ruins. Goes on to ask, how long? O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old by which your faithfulness you swore to David? We've got the words of your promise. Don't see much of the action right now. This is where the prophets come in. The prophets shine as, uh, again, our passage for the sermon two weeks ago pointed out. There's light that shines in the darkness. Those who walked in darkness, on them the light has shone. Throughout the prophets, they grab hold of these promises to David. I've listed off a couple of them in your outline, but you could do a much deeper dive into the Old Testament of the prophets and just say, see the ways they take these promises to David of the steadfast love coming to him and his people forever and say, this is going to turn into something. This, is, this can't be over. It seems like the darkness has won. It seems like this is over, but this is not going to be the end. We'll look at just one, because that's all the time we have. 
But Isaiah 11, famously, Isaiah 11 talks about the stump of Jesse, right? Why was there a stump of Jesse to be talked about at the beginning of Isaiah 11? Well, the end of Isaiah 10 tells us. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the bows with terrifying power. The great height will be hewn down. The lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Right? It's this picture. That stump is a picture of judgment has come. The stump of Jesse's family tree. Jesse, the father of David. His family tree has been reduced to seemingly... A dead stump. That's what the people in Lamentations and Psalm 89 are mourning. Like it just seems like all this is now a dead stump. But there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Seemingly a dead stump. Miraculously a shoot will come forth. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Never thought that stump would produce fruit again. Shall bear fruit. And we can read on. This is great fruit. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, shall rest upon that branch. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of, the knowledge, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight of the branch will be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or disputes by what his ears hear. I right? think of the, the fallible judgments of most of our rulers, all of our rulers. No, but this one, this branch, with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. I want this one ruling over me. The prophet Isaiah thinks his, the transformation that happens under this one isn't just some tiny local thing. It is cosmic shaping. Keep reading in Isaiah chapter 11. The world order gets turned upside down. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze and their young shall lie down together. The lox shall eat straw. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nurse and child shall play over the hole over the cobra, of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Boy, I'd love to get in on this. Too bad it's only for the offspring, the physical offspring. Of Jacob. Oh, no, let's keep reading. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Through the son of David, the prophet's promise that that which was cut down shall be restored. But the promise isn't just restoration, right? Like when uh, you know, I'm building, uh, you know, I get my kids a Lego set, and 
through some uh, way or another, it somehow gets destroyed accidentally, purposely, in anger. We don't need to get into that, right? It gets destroyed. Okay. Daddy's job is to help rebuild it. Um, when I rebuild it, at best, it's as good as what it was when we first built it, right? That's not the restoration being talked about here, right? The prophets take the glory of David and Solomon's kingdom and say, this is going to be restored, but let me expand it. Let me expand it to the horizons of uh, the blessing that was going to happen through Abraham's son. Right? It is going to be all the nations. It is going to be global. As far as the curse is found, so will the glorious reign of David's son be. All the nations of the earth can get in on this can know the blessing of having David's greater son as their Lord. And so we don't have time to unpack how this plays out in the historic return from Babylon. Because God is faithful to his promises that after 70 years, essentially a generation, those who were deported to Babylon get brought back. Now what they get, and, and even someone from David's throne gets to, gets to be not king, governor. It's not restored Israel. It's, uh, as the Persians call it, the land beyond the sea. It's the, he gets to rule. And so there's some faithfulness, and they even get to rebuild the temple. Uh, all signs of God's faithfulness. But it's an interesting portrayal of that in Ezra 3. When they, they, they've got the foundation, the outline, basically, of the, of the temple built... And it's a cause for great rejoicing. Who thought this day would ever come? Right? When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. Right? We, we just couldn't believe it. And so there's great rejoicing there in Ezra 3. But there's some people who are old enough to vaguely remember what the old temple was like. What do they do? They're weeping. <laughs> like, hey, it's not. Well, this, is, this is good. God is good. But this is not. This is not what is... This is not what was promised. The restoration you read about in the Old Testament never quite hits what uh, the promises of the prophets were. And that's not because God's not faithful. They just knew they were still waiting. I mean, you even see this in the genealogy. Look again at our, the genealogy. According to this, when did the deportation... When did the deportation end? There's, there's no note of it. <laughs> Simply in verse uh, 11, and his bro- you know, Josiah and the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Everything after that, simply after the deportation. Yes, they get to be brought back. But if you asked Jacob, the father of Joseph, or maybe even Joseph himself, he's still in exile. Yeah, or at least ask, has that restoration that was promised happened yet? No, it hasn't happened yet. We're still waiting until we get to the one who's called the Christ, who doesn't just get Israel, someone to sit on the throne in Jerusalem over that little land beyond the river, but who the increase of his government and his rule, there will be no end whose blessings will come to all who know him as Lord. 
This is good news for us, right? And truth is, we should have seen it coming. Matthew thinks we should have seen it coming. That's why I want to point out, just real quickly, one of the details in this is uh, in the genealogy is that one is very repetitive, right? When I was reading it earlier, there was a lot of A is the father of B, B is the father of C, C is the father of D, right? That's the pattern. But every once in a while, Matthew would break out. I even accidentally missed it because I was reading so, so quick earlier. He points out a couple mothers. <laughs> Did you notice the mothers he points out? Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and then kind of circums- kind of coyly, the mother or the wife of Uriah. Right? Points out these mothers. Why point up these mothers? I mean, some of them, he ha- they're not brought up. Every time these generations are brought up. Um, but all of these are from Gentile families. Tamar, almost certainly a Canaanite. Rahab, the famous, infamous, famous Canaanite prostitute. Ruth, the Moabite, the wife of Uriah, Uriah the Hittite. All of this is pointing to the fact that this blessing, this plan of God was for all nations. And he brings it through his Christ who's a generation unlike any of these others, right? Something different is happening in this generation. You even see that in the way Matthew explains it, right? He doesn't just say Joseph, the father of Jesus, who's called the Christ, right? No, Joseph, the other, the other mothers who's brought, who's brought up, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, right? Really, I, I think an obvious allusion to the virgin birth here, Right? Joseph isn't the father of Jesus the way that others on this list were the fathers of who's listed, right? No, he's, he's, of, he's born of Mary. And he's called the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the long-awaited son of David, son of Abraham. Finally, the one for whom we've been pining is here. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in Christ tonight. And this is why we celebrate Christmas. This is why we have like these festivities. This is why we have this whole celebration and season and build up and longing, right? It is right to celebrate. It is right to party as we try and ponder the depth of this and recognize it and pass it along to other generations and pass it along to our children. So I would just commend to you to rejoice. Like, outwardly rejoice this Christmas. Let your kids know why you do it. Let your neighbors know why you do it. Let your nieces and nephews and your grandparents and your aunt and uncles know why you do it. Why you have a reason to rejoice. This is one of the weird things about our world. I got, what? Oh, I got time. One of the weird things about our world is that, as I mentioned at the very beginning, we're a pining world, just as a fact. We're a weary, longing world, just as a fact. And so we're always looking for things to celebrate. And Christmas brings about this time in which people are going to celebrate. 
this has been this has been true seemingly for time immemorial. I was reading a little bit this week. So if you think um, kind of the secularization of Christmas is a new problem, I've got news for you. We've been fighting the battle of like other things eclipsing the true meaning of Christmas, the deep meaning of Christmas forever. <laughs> so it's not just, uh, you know, Homer Simpson, Santa Claus, inflatables in your front yard is like, like the new first time that anything's ever gotten in the way of people celebrating Christmas truly and deeply. Uh, this is just something I came across in my reading, my, my pleasure reading. Jane's like, you read that for fun? And then, yes, I read that for fun. In my pleasure reading this week um, about Christmas in the Middle Ages, uh, you're 1207. Pope Innocent III is decrying the theatrical entertainments, the masked shows, the scandalous stupidities, and obscene revelries performed in churches during the Christmas season. So in the year 1207, there was a battle to know what and why we're celebrating at this time of year. And it's still there. I have a friend from college who was featured in the latest issue of People magazine. I just found this out. Uh, Do you want to know what him and his wife were featured for? They have a Christmas light display on their house that is just otherworldly. Like it put, like it looks like when you go to the falls here and you're like, that's a good start, right? Their Christmas light display, and they've done this for years. It's amazing Christmas light display, music and everything. But they're, this year, and they always have a theme, but this year's theme really captured like the, the imagination of the American people that this house in Naperville, Illinois is now featured in People Magazine. Any guesses of what this year's theme is? Taylor Swift. <laughs> so tons of Taylor Swift syncretism with Christmas in their front yard. Read about it in the pages of People magazine. People are going to celebrate. Uh, but is it like the equivalent of Christmas lights plugged in to itself? Just nothing to generate any real light or joy. We know the reason, right? We have a reason to celebrate. Matthew tells us this is the birth of the son of Abraham, the son of David. He's come to make peace, to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found for those who know him as Lord. We've got reason to celebrate. So let's feast. Let's do it. Let's put up some lights for good reason. Um, let me pray. And then if you've got questions or something like that, I guess we can, I can stick around and answer questions. I didn't leave time for questions, but I'll pray. And um, there we go. So Heavenly Father, thank you that you sent your son to be born of a woman, born under the law. Thank you that Jesus was faithful in all the ways we've failed, in all the ways every other son an offspring of David has failed. He was faithful, and yet he took on curse for us. So this, as we ponder that this Christmas season, make us ones who genuinely repent, genuinely put our faith in him, and are genuinely able to rejoice. And may our rejoicing 
look different. May our rejoicing give opportunity to, to, to answer questions or to be asked questions by those around us of why it is that we are rejoicing. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.